welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek. I'm here with past guest. It's been two years, Laura Coe. How are you doing, Laura? I am great. Thank you so much for having me again, Josh. Really glad to have you here. There's been a lot that's happened in the past couple of years. We've been in touch off and on in that time. So I, I got an email from you about two weeks ago, and it said, I'm launching my new book, part of a 15-book series called The Nature of Series, starting in September. So I guess in a couple of weeks. featuring Akashic spiritual wisdom in three books, The Nature of Love, The Nature of Self-Love, and The Nature of Boundaries, and a new platform called The Little Soul School, a dedicated space to learn from the Akashic realm. Now, if I didn't know you, I wouldn't know what Akashic realm meant. But I do know because we've, this will come out in conversation for people who haven't heard. And the next sentence said, any chance you'd like me to come on your podcast? With a kind of, I think a tone of like, I understand if it's a little too out there for you, I'll give you an easy out. I was like, no way. When I heard about it, I forget how exactly it happened, but I contacted you and I was like, tell me more because I'm, I'm really curious. And regular listeners know that over the past several months, maybe a year or so, I've been bringing on more and more religion, people from religious backgrounds, evangelicals. And I just yesterday recorded with the chief, the top Muslim scholar at Cambridge University in England. And I think there's a lot to be learned and a lot, especially from leadership and the emotions of, of spirituality. And so Akashic spiritual wisdom, the Akashic realm being, I think, safe to say not standard in America. I think for a lot of people, it's going to be something different from the perspective of, of someone who doesn't go to church, doesn't go to synagogue, doesn't go to, to me, I'm very curious about all, a lot of these things. So even though you gave me an out, I said, no way. One, you're a friend. Two, you're a great guest and host. And three, I'm really curious to learn more. And that, so that's the frame for this conversation. Also, I, I haven't read the books. They're, they're not out yet. So um, take it from here, Laura. I, have, I, have I given you a good frame to start with what brings you to spread this? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. And thanks for having me back. I love what you do. I think your message is really important and I appreciate being part of it. Yeah. I mean, you know, Josh, it's like you've known me for a long time. I was somebody who, I was a philosophy undergrad and graduate student, thought I was to be a professor in philosophy. It's my passion. Didn't want to be a professor. So similar to you, I kind of wanted to do things that are broader in the world. Didn't know how to do philosophy through academia that would be broad. So I, I became an entrepreneur, did that for a long time. Then I did this whole decade of, of authenticity. I came back to philosophy, what I loved. I was able to do it on the internet, You know, had the coaching, the podcast, a book. I was interested in what it means to be true to ourselves, what it means to live an authentic life, what it means to like step forward in these ways. And I don't know, it was going really well. I call myself a healthy skeptic, right? Like I was open to things, but I don't know, didn't, didn't believe past a certain point in most stuff. And then I stumbled and in, stumbled into this Akashic realm. And so for the listeners, I was as surprised as you may be, or maybe you've heard of it, but It's essentially the energetic space that holds your soul's history. And it also holds wisdom about the world we live in, like philosophical wisdom. It dates back thousands of years. If you've heard of the book of life in the Old Testament, New Testament, I never knew that, but like the book of life, the book of your life, that's your soul's history. So they're referencing this concept, right? Akasha is the primary substance. Uh, that's the definition of the Sanskrit word. A woman named Madame Blavetsky, for those history people out there, brought it to America. 
turn of the century, uh, Yeats, if you know, the, the poet, if you know, Krishnamurti, the brilliant Indian philosopher, they were part of a, a society in New York City and they got together and they'd play with this realm. The simplest way to think about it is there's an, every single person is entering the space all the time. So if you think about the last time you had a hunch, you had a knowing, you had a intuition, you had a creative flow. Uh, you just said to yourself, I don't know why, but I know it's time to change jobs, get married, have a kid. You just have a sense, an intuition. That is the Akashic realm. The question is, how do we access more of it? How do we take the basically like the small antenna we have to get into our intuition, right? Because it comes on a walk, it comes on a shower, it comes in a moment. It's something that you're constantly searching for, that like sense of Ah, oh, what's true to me, right? Like, where's that gut intuition? I know I need to go left versus right in my life because we're trying to build our lives all day long. It could be simple, like, do I really want to go to dinner with some friends? It could be really big, like, is this the right job to take right now in my life? Anyways, we use this intuitive sense all the time. That is the Akashic realm. What I have found is there's a system. I've trained a couple hundred people including Josh, like where you can, (laughs) you can read some sentences. Don't ask me how it works. It opens up this vibrational frequency, if you want to call it that. So if you think about what's an intuition, you're walking all of a sudden, you have a knowing, you have a knowing, it comes to you. That's how we say it. We don't think hard to get there. We actually let go and we have a knowing. So you open yourself up to this space and somehow you have some, some revelation about what you need to do with your life. You read a sentence in a book and you go, oh, that's it. That's it. Why? Why do you have that oh feeling, right? So the Akashic realm is just a, the system I use and I taught Josh and I could teach yeah. anybody. I've taught a couple hundred people, every single person, whether they're an accountant, a banker, or a lawyer. I did a men's group of 40 dudes who are the last people on the planet who think of themselves as Akashic record readers, which by the way, was me. I mean, last thing I thought I'd be doing. And all of them were successful because we're already in it. So what the system is, is it's an amplifier. It's a way to, by reading these sentences, we just get more of that, right? We get visuals, we get a sense, we get feelings, we get language. And all of a sudden, and I'll let Josh maybe share a little bit of his story, but you say these sentences, you open up your soul's energetic field and the energetic field of the Akashic realm. And you start asking questions and you get these extraordinary answers and you go on and on and on and on and on. That's what my books are. I started asking questions. What's the nature of love according to the Akashic realm? And I got these unbelievably beautiful, profound answers. So I did 15 of those and that's what the book is, but I still had more questions. So I started asking with friends, like I would just go in and I'm like, let's ask about why do we need to be right? What is that? Why do we all feel a need when we argue with our, our partners like to be right, right? Like why? Got a great answer. What's fear? What's purpose? When I ask in this realm, the, the answers are so beautiful and simplistic because there's no judgment. There's no right or wrong. There's no uh, sense of time. So again, I'll, we'll talk more about it. I don't want to overwhelm in the first few minutes, but it's that's basically the the general idea, and that's where the books are, and that's where this little soul school is coming from. And and you know, I, I taught you, Josh. I mean, what what would you say your experience was of it? Well, my experience was uh, so. This was what a year ago, two years. It, it must have been about a year ago, I think. I think I can't remember. Yeah, I was kind of curious, and 
or I'm going to repeat some, some of what you said, that you were mainstream American person, successful in business, successful in the transitioning from mainstream business into doing your own thing of coaching and writing books that were mainstream books, which I really liked and still do. And uh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. And oh, wait, now I'm forgetting the name of the, the book of emotional um, obesity. I mean, emotional obesity was such a great concept for me, which I still think of. So I was like, okay, what's a Kashik room? Now, for context for me, let's say I'm walking around through New York City. Sometimes I pass by a church and I look inside and I see people praying and, or doing their thing. And I'm like, all right, I, it's not something that I do. They seem to get a lot of value out of it. I pass by synagogues, same thing. But also I'll pass by like a tarot reader. And to me, I don't really get it. It seems like there's cards and some element of chance. And, and I read the paper and there's uh, astrology in it. And I'm constantly thinking, these things have been around forever. They're not going away. And if I stick with my pure science people, they denigrate these things as a waste of time or charlatans or things like that. But somehow they don't go away. They're not purporting to be, I don't know what they're purporting to be, but some kind of curious, all right, here's this other thing I hadn't heard before. Uh, someone I know is really into it. I'm kind of curious. And you walked me through a step-by-step process that was, I take it, you didn't create it. it. Someone taught it to you. You practiced it. And you walked me through some steps. And there's a ritual to it, which seems common to a lot of different religions, not the particular of the, that there is really ritual. Mm-hmm. And now I'm going to describe it in a non-supernatural way. Sure. But, okay, say there's a fire. like if I'm in a building and it catches on fire, and if you ask me to like think thoughtfully at this moment, really consider things in depth, I'm like, oh, there's a fire. I got to get out of here. You know, under a high stress situation, I'm not thoughtful. I'm not reflective. I'm not introspective. I'm very short-sighted. My, my thinking is just in the moment. By contrast, if I, I've done these 10-day meditation retreats and then, you know, no talking, no reading, no writing, just meditating for 10 days, then I can think of ideas that take a day or two or three days to germinate. And I can really think in much more depth. So I go through a process that's very relaxing and puts me in a, a more comfortable state where I'm not stressed out and I'm not defensive. I'm not imagining like, oh, well, what will she think if I say X? What will she think if I say Y? I'm just saying what comes to mind based on being more thoughtful, introspective, less harried, less stressed. and more trusting of my gut, my instinct, my intuition that's developed over my life. Now, your framing of it is that there's this parallel realm. And I'm like, oh, okay, maybe there's, maybe there isn't. I'll do, go through the process. And <laughs> now, personally, I'm thinking, I'm just more freely thinking, not accessing a different realm. Or if I'm there, I'm not, I'm indifferent to that. I'm just doing, following the steps. But it's really comfortable. And it really comes up with, like, I think my intuition is pretty good. I think everyone's intuition is pretty good, but most of us put a protective layer over everything inside of, over our more thoughtful and introspective and our vulnerabilities we protect. And so I didn't feel vulnerable, or rather I didn't feel a need to protect my vulnerabilities. And I was playfully and enjoyably exploring my thoughts and intuitions that normally I would protect myself and not feel like, like I might think, well, my gut says this. And then I think, well, let's analyze and plan and make sure 
I protect against all the things I might be missing and so forth. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so it was a comfortable experience that led to insight, reflection. If that came from another realm, maybe, but that's not how I look at it. I mean, there was a bit of, of in me feeling of like, uh, I mean, at the beginning, I'm like, what are my friends saw? But whatever, I've done crazy <laughs> things that, uh, and then it's at the beginning, I'm thinking what's really happening here, but then I'm just going with it. I don't know. Yeah. This, that was my experience. This is like the um, kind of meta description of it. Then to go into like what specifically I, I said and saw, it was, I need my memory jogged a bit. Yeah, you were in my records. And um, I do this thing called the best friend test where before we go in, I ask you your opinion on a question. Um, did I meet my soulmate? And you answered me within three minutes, which I've run this experiment now with the several hundred people I've, I've trained. And they always answer based on their experience, their knowledge of me, their view of that topic. And then they give some kind of answer. And it's usually to under 10 sentences. They think to themselves, what, what, do, what have I experienced? How do I give advice about this topic? Um, I'll say, have I met my soulmate? And how can I heal? Some people know me, some people don't know me, but it, it's never more than a couple sentences. So you did that. And then you went inside my Akashic Records and you spoke for 30 straight minutes with <laughs> silhouettes and visuals. And you spoke about truths about this relationship that you don't know. I know you don't know because you and I don't have that kind of relationship. And you were nailing like her personality, my personality, how we interact, where we were. You were talking about it through a a visual description that was very minimalist drawings. Like you had these sketch drawings that you were using to describe it. The records come through in metaphor. And when you were answering me without the records, you did not use metaphor. You did not use descriptions. And I literally said at some point, like, Josh, I got to go. It's been 30 minutes. You lost track of time. You were having so much fun. Oh, that's right. And you were yeah, like, okay, yeah. hold on, hold on. One more. Just give me one more question though, because it's, it's fun. It's like, it's very relaxing and it's different than our normal experience. And, and I think you, you did a great job of sort of explaining it. And I'll just piggyback on what you're saying. You know, I too... I don't go into religion. I don't necessarily believe in these things. None of it really appealed to me. I grew up Jewish, but I don't, I don't care about it. But I, I believe there was maybe something more than just what we see, because obviously we're always learning, but about, about the world, right? Like we don't clearly, we're not in the moment in history where we learned everything there is to know about how the world operates, right? So maybe there's something that we don't see or hear, understand yet, but I just kind of, it was a healthy, healthy skeptic. So I, I went to my first Akashic Record reading and this lady who I've never met in my entire life, I went on a whim for fun. You know, she starts telling me, I had a couple friends who I said, I want to live in a modern minimalist apartment on the lake. Couple friends. And she opens up my Akashic field and she says, okay, so I see a modern minimalist apartment on the lake. (laughs) And I was like, what? And then she just starts talking about my life with this uncanny detail that resonated so truthfully for me that, you know, I would try to say to myself, well, maybe she Googled or maybe she this, or maybe she that. But the next reading we did, we were in New York, we were, we were in Soho and my partner and I went on the streets of Soho and we bought a Tibetan bowl for fun. And we wanted to try, you know, playing with the bowl. You can make sound with it or something. I don't know. We were just entertaining ourselves. The next day we did an Akashic record reading. So we were sitting in the hotel, we're playing with this bowl. And she says, I see a Tibetan bowl and I see sound therapy. Now, come, I mean, the two of us are alone in Manhattan. Nobody knows but us. And she's talking about this bowl, right? So 
there's these uncanny like details that are like, there's no way that somebody could know. And then the experience starts to describe you, what you're stuck on, what you need to heal, the relationships, but it's beautiful. It's from this kind of, like I said, compassionate, non-judgmental. There's nothing wrong. It's just you know, this lady called me once. So I do these readings for people. Now they call me from all over the country and I don't know who they are. Right. And I sit down and they ask me these questions. And this lady says, should I buy this house? It's like, huh? Okay. So I focus. I said, should she she buy a new house? I don't know. Right. If you ask me personally, I don't know if a stranger should buy a house or not. I'd say, I don't know. Why are you asking me that? That's weird. So I go in her Akashic field and and I said, "I, I think your husband's an alcoholic. I think what you're asking me is whether or not you want to purchase another home in this relationship you've been in for a couple of decades with somebody who's got a really severe addiction because it doesn't make you feel so great inside. And I go into all the details about how she feels in this like relationship because of her husband's addiction, what his addiction specifically means for him, what it would mean to continue forward with buying another house. And she's like, how do you know all this? And I was like, I don't know. And so here's my view. My father is a world-famous physician. My first career was in the healthcare tech space. I would get into these debates with my dad about it because he's you know, not interested in anything that's not proven by science. And I was like, dad, tell me about the placebo effect. For real, for real. You guys all set up experiments and you say to yourselves, we're going to use this cute little word placebo every time. And what we mean by that is like, some people just self-heal. Some people just have an experience that is like 100% your mind is doing something to heal or create an issue. And you take it for granted as just part of every experiment, always, right? I was like, that's the weirdest thing on the planet for science people to say, hey, we all know there's going to be some subset (laughs) where it's Uh like defying all logic. And there's some way in which you are creating some kind of outcome with your own mind. Right. And then we started talking about, and I said, you know, why aren't you guys just studying placebo? Like, why isn't that where all the grant funding is going? Right. Like, what is that? In meditation, you know, 15, 20 years ago, we would say, oh my God, that's so weird. Who sits and, and meditates? Right. But I'm like, okay, meditation, you're sitting quietly, just closing your eyes and trying to relax. Sleep, I mean, talking about something weird, we all get in bed and we go into some in-between state for like eight hours. And we just, I don't know, we have visuals, we have like, we're, we're, we're lucid, but we're not, we can kind of be woken, but we're really in some weird state. So my point is, Josh, like there's all these things that we can't really fully explain, right? And we've baked it into cultural norms and we, we just say, well, we go to sleep. What the hell is sleep, right? Like, we just have placebo. And it's like, well, why? Right? Like, what is that? And so my father, who's like hardcore, pretty much conceded after about 20 debates about it, but (laughs) I don't, I don't know what this is and I don't care. Right? Like my perspective is I don't care what I know when I sleep, I feel better. It's essential to my life. I don't really understand what I'm doing and why I'm having these weird visuals and all of it. Like we haven't really mapped the brain, but it's just what it is. The Akashic realm after hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours with people writing these books, I know that the outcome is profound and valuable. And what I receive 
heals me, helps me. I, I speak to people and they're in tears with relief about what they've heard, clearing relationship issues, blocks they've had for years, um, a better sense of themselves. So I said this to you before the show, but you and I are on this call. Our voices are traveling in real time. You know, you are hearing me in Chicago instantly in New York a hundred years ago, that would have been considered to be impossible. Cell phones, impossible. If I could go back a hundred years and drop all the equipment to a group of people and be like, Shh, don't ask how it works. Don't worry about it. But here's this gift, right? <laughs> you, you dial these numbers. You could talk across the world. Like I'd hope they wouldn't ask too many questions. They would just do it because it works, right? So I just know it works. And I'm trying to not get hung up on my lack of scientific empirical evidence, right? It works. I mean, so that that's my view and it heals. And, you know, poetry, it heals too, right? Poetry, what is poetry? It's like a bunch of spoken words and it's a bunch of sentences. The arts, they're meaningful to us. They make a difference and they impact us and they help us in our life. This does as well. It's not fully clear to me how or why exactly all the details, but I mean, I could share Tibetan bowl stories with you for like three hours, right? Of that level of uncanny, what we call serendipitous detail. And so, you know, it took me about a year to stop being skeptical, but I'm, I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> and advancing it. I mean, if you're doing books, these are books that haven't been written before. And so you, you're bringing something in from your experience that the community which I'm curious about the community as well. I presume you're not copying someone else, something that's already been said. So you've discovered something new. But I also want to comment on, you were talking about meditation. And I remember when I first started in yoga, at one point, my and yoga, by the time I was doing yoga, this is 15, 20 years ago, it's mainstream. I mean, a long time ago, it was to Americans weird, although it goes back, I don't know, five, 10,000 years right. in other cultures. <laughs> and I'm sure when the first people doing yoga in the United States, people were like, what's that? And so at one point, my yoga instructor said, all right, let's meet in Central Park. And I thought, oh, wait, wait, people can see me. Yeah. And I was really freaked out about it. And then I did it a couple of times. It's like, there's absolutely no, no, nothing weird in it in, in you know, 2021 or whenever it was, 2005, maybe 2010. And I posted it a little while ago. I, I meditate every, every other day now. And I found it more comfortable to be in a half lotus position and then more comfortable in a lotus position. But it was really hard. Like my legs were screaming in pain when I was trying to get in a lotus position. So every time for every time I would meditate, I would try a little bit longer, a little bit. And after a while, I could sit comfortably in a full lotus. And then I found out that I saw an interesting pose, which is to have my palms together, but instead of in front of me, behind my back. So I tried doing that and like my arms and shoulders and chest are like screaming in pain. But for some reason, this is, it's symmetric. It's not like yeah. if I cross my fingers, this to me is really annoying. Like one thumb is over the other thumb. If I can put the other thumb over that thumb, but then it's asymmetric the other way. But if I put my palms together, then it's symmetric. And then that gives me a certain calm. Am I too little of a detail? I don't know. But it's all about these little details. And yeah. So I took a picture of myself from the front and back with me sitting full lotus with my arms and palms together behind my back. When I first looked at the picture, because I had to set up on my uh, camera and then sit down and it takes me a while to get into it. I look at the picture. I'm like, oh, this looks like some Indian, I don't know what the guru or no, what would be the right, fakir. I don't know what the right term would be. I'm like, this is really out there. To me, I look like that looks unnatural to me, not unnatural, unlike me. And I, anyway, I put it up online 
And I thought people were gonna be like, Josh, you really like that's really farther than most people go. And people are like, whatever. That wasn't a response that I expected. I ex- you know, and then I'm like, maybe I'm hung up on something here then needlessly. Yeah. You know, Josh, I want to say to you that like I've been making a joke privately to friends. And when I said it to my assistant who helps me a lot with marketing and copy stuff, and he's like, actually, you know, it's really something I think you could talk about publicly more frequently. Like I came out as, as gay in the nineties and, you know, it was a big deal. It was like, People were in a phase where they wanted you to describe the moment you knew you were gay. What was that moment? What was the second? And and it was so normative that I thought it was the right question. So I would search my soul to answer this for years, right? Like, was it the day that I, this was it, was it, what did I know when I was young? How young? What was the moment? And people would ask this because if you could answer, then it wasn't a choice, right? That this was truly like biology, that this wasn't like just a choice. And because the whole question back then was, if it's a choice, why would you make this choice? You know, it's not a good choice. Mm -hmm. Like it was just strange, right? But it was of the time. But it was a very hard process to go through to consistently, somebody said once, when was the last time, when did you come out? And you're like, yesterday, right? Because whoever you meet in the world there's a moment when you have to, when you say I'm gay and and like, so you're coming out to get their reaction yet again, yet again, yet again. And back then that was the question. How did you, how did you know? When did you, I'm so curious, right? Like, and it's this exhausting exercise. And so I thought when I was coming out with the Akashic realm, right? Cause here I was like, I was, you know, I did yoga like you, but yeah, there's a, there's a bit of a um, stigma attached to, you said it a couple of times, going too far, not being yourself. And quite frankly, it's like offensive to the several thousand year tradition that there's something like not okay about it. But the Western cultural views are everything is in our brains, right? We moved into this sort of Descartes, I think therefore I am like, you know, everything that matters is between my ears. The rest of me is like irrelevant. We're now finding out that the science of like the gut, right? There's, there's more serotonin and uh, there's so much going on in the rest of our bodies that, that informs us than just our brains. But nonetheless, you know, there's this view of going too far and, and, and being out there or something, which um, is so baked into our culture. And it's, it's offensive to so many other very beautiful ancient systems and ideas. But I felt that way too. And I felt very embarrassed to start talking about this thing. Like, oh my God, I'm going to put my career in the Akashic realm and my friends are going to totally just skewer me. And I'm like, how do I do this? So I started saying, you know, yeah, there's this thing I've been doing, right? Like, and I had been keeping it kind of under wraps. I was doing it with some friends. I wasn't talking about it that much. I kind of hint around it, but but then I realized, okay, if I'm going to write all these books, I got to start admitting to this secret of mine, right? And what I found was so cool, uh, to your point about the the post, not only were people receptive, but very quickly they'd say, oh, I, I think I believe in something too. Like, because uh-huh. I think there's a whole community of people, right, who aren't traditionally religious. They might've grown up religious, they might have had to go to church or temple or something. They didn't take to it so much, but they don't believe nothing, right? They're not atheists, right? And they're looking for some way to talk about this middle ground, something without feeling weird about that, without feeling like if you're educated, 
the idea is that if you can't prove it, if you can't talk about it with scientific evidence, then you're faith-based, which has a judgment, or you're uneducated because you're doing things that aren't, quote, proven. And so there's a shame in admitting that you believe in something, even if you can't fully describe it, explain it, prove it, you know, or something like that, right? And not become religious in a kind of culty way, right? And so I feel like there's this beautiful community of people everywhere I would go, they'd say, oh yeah, no, I, I'm kind of interested. No, I would try that, right? I want to I want to learn more. And I honestly don't know of anybody that gave me a, a really hard time, even diehard skeptics. I'd be like, look, man, I don't know. I just know that my friend called me and said, can you go in my records and find my wallet? And I was like, no. And I went in her records and I was like, okay, so I see a pile of clothing and your wallet stuffed in there. You grab the clothing and you put it in your hamper. She was like, oh, okay. Don't get a phone call back. I'm like, didn't work. Three hours later, she, she's like, I found my wallet. And I said, well, why did it take you three hours? She goes, because um, I looked in the hamper. I didn't see it. I looked everywhere else. And then I thought, oh, let me just empty the hamper. Cause I had said to her, it's really stuffed in there. You got to look carefully. She's like, you were right. It was really stuffed in there and I didn't look carefully. <laughs> it was like, right. I have not been at my friend's house. I don't know where her wallet is. And I, I found a wallet, right. Told that story to my partner. She's like a week later, she lost her credit card. She calls me. She says, I lost my credit card. I'm like, come on, man. I'm not a party trick. Like, I, I don't know that I can replicate this. Maybe that was a fluke because I'm weirded out by it too. And, I, and she said, please, please, please. I'm desperate. I go, ah. So I go in her records. I open them up. And I said, okay, I see that it's like, you know, that spot between your glove compartment and your chair in, in your car. And I said, it's, it's down there, but you got to move your chair forward because it's really lodged in, right? It's, it's really lodged in. So two minutes later, photo from her, 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 her phone, it's flush against the side of the car, exactly where I said it was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, what the hell? Like, I can't argue with, and, and again, I could bore your audience for hours. There's so many of these. It's like, I read this guy and, and, and I, he asked me about his new house he was building. And I said, man, I just keep wanting to say tomato, 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 tomatoes. Like you're only doing tomatoes. Why am I talking about tomatoes? And he goes, I want a tomato garden and I don't want anything else. I was thinking it was funny to have a garden, but only tomatoes. And I was like, all right. Right. And it's just, thousands and thousands of these examples over these years where, you know, I can't explain it away. And I'm really grateful that the people I've encountered in my quote, intellectually educated communities are really receptive. And, and I think people are looking for something that's uh, not necessarily classically religious, but also offers perspective and value in your life, uh, not just finding wallets, but you know, truths about, about your, your current situation, how to get unstuck, how to find freedom or healing or next steps or, or what have you. Um, because as truthful as it is about those topics, it's as truthful about, you know, your current life situation, right. That we're, we're all looking for purpose, understanding more fulfillment, more happiness to get unstuck, better relationships. And this realm answers that for me all the time. And I'm just a billion times happier when I listen, right? I'm just going to share, not really knowing where I'm going with this, but so I hear this and 
I've grown up with people telling me that they have answers in Jesus or they have answers in the Torah or they have answers in, and some time ago, people felt they had answers in what we would now call myth of like Thor or yeah. uh, Zeus. And I don't know. I mean, they seem pretty confident. They've been around for a long time. And this sounds to me like that. And at one point I might've debated with them or said, prove it or something like that. But I'm just having conversations that have been had uncountable numbers of times over the years. Sometimes I think half the internet is people debating on these things that are outside debate. And where it ends up is where I think you just said is, is what makes you happy and fulfilled. And rather, how do you answer the questions? We all have questions that we really can't answer by, science doesn't tell us what our value should be. Yeah. Science doesn't tell us, I mean, I'm going to bring in the environment here that when I talk with the science and tech people, I get, you know, they say, obviously nuclear fusion is better because it doesn't produce carbon emissions. And as if they act as if efficiency is just good. They don't examine their values. They don't examine unintended side effects. And science doesn't tell us our values. Here's a way you should put it, uh, is that Euclid created Euclidean geometry. He started with a, a small number of axioms and then created a whole geometry from that. The axioms don't come from math. They're inputs. And if you change the axioms, you change the geometry. You change the results, but you can't prove them from anything else. And science in general and math in general can bring you from discovering the mass of an electron and, and laws of physics, but it won't tell you what's good and what's bad. Yeah. Look, Josh, you're okay. So you want to bring out the philosophy nerd in me. Like, you know, there's been an epistemological philosophy, this question of how do we know anything for certain, right? has been on the table forever. Um, science would like to say we know things for certain until they don't, right? Quantum physics is turning everything on its, on its heels, right? So, but this idea of knowing and therefore feeling comfortable that you can follow in something because you know it with certainty is what I think people are struggling with when they look at faith, quote, faith-based things, right? And in philosophy, there's a guy named Quine who basically threw away this entire conversation. He was at Harvard and he said, look, you can't get outside of perception to prove something is true outside of our perception, right? You can't, we are always perceiving. So no matter what we do, it's within the human perception field that we are saying this is true or that's not true, right? I mean, you can't get outside of the fact that I'm always sensing and that is how I'm deciding I know. Um, my eyes are looking at the computer while I talk to you. It's taking in all the pixelation. It's creating form. I was told that what I'm looking at is a computer. So I now take all this information in through my eyes. My brain says computer and then I have this knowledge of what it is that I'm looking at, but little kids, you know, have to learn all that, right? They don't, they don't look at this and have the organization to say, this is this, this is that. We, we take them, we show them things, we point to it until they repeat the word that we choose. And when we look at things, it's just our, our senses, right? Taking it in and, and telling us there's something there and our brain organizes it and puts it into language feelings, right? We watch a movie, the music crescendos in a certain way, and it creates a sensation that gives us a physiological uh, chemical reaction of feelings. And, and that makes us 
respond a certain way and decide this thing or that thing about it. We can't experience anything outside of perception, right? I mean, that's the that's the thing. And so the question becomes what's outside of perception? Well, I don't know because I'm not outside of perception, right? So you're stuck there. So I don't care that I don't know. I don't study quantum physics. You probably know a ton more than I do, but there's all this weird stuff happening, right? Like you can spin particles together, uh, coupling, put one on one side of the country, the other one on the other, spin one and the other spins. Like that's not supposed to be possible, right? You're not supposed to be able to do that. One thing can be in two places. That makes no sense. There's all these things now that like go against all of our quote common knowledge. Science does this every however long. We have to reorganize ourselves around what it's now telling us to be true. So for me, there's a bunch of things about religion that didn't appeal for to me. I, I don't want to sit in a temple or church. I don't want to be spoken at by somebody. I don't love a lot of the rituals. Uh, some of it feels antiquated. A lot of it has a lot of judgment in it. A lot of like, you know, there's a right way to live and a wrong way to live. So this appeals to me because it's got the beauty of, because you were talking about, right, that people get value out of it. Underlying messages and stories within some of these religious institutions are meaningful values and, and morality and how to think about them. There's some value there for sure. The judgment, the right and wrong, the going to heaven or hell or all that stuff that doesn't appeal to me. I don't have any of that in the Akashic realm. I've asked all that stuff. There is none of it. I mean, just none of it. So this is a much freer modality in terms of, you know, those concepts being there. I, I think, you know, a lot of that stuff comes from, from humans inserting, but that's a whole nother conversation we can talk about a different day. I use this system as a way to better my life. And you mentioned values are particular to us. There's no science behind them. I'll go even further and say the truth of who I am and how I live my life and what it means to be authentic to me, which is the topic I've focused on for the last decade, is specific to me. And only I know that. And that is not science. That is not math. That is not logic, right? There is within all of us a stir, a call. Why are you so interested in the environment? Why is somebody else just absolutely motivated to? practice piano every day. There's no science to that, right? We don't have like a brain mapping that says every brain that looks this way will be organized towards the, the environmental studies. Right? <laughs> like, there's truths within us and how we express those truths, even though there's uh, however many people interested in environment, Josh, you're going to do it the way you're doing it, the com combination of ways that you approach it. And that's what makes the world beautiful, right? It's these unique self-expressions of our understanding of the world, but then our unique uh, take on it and, and our, our stamp of truth, our fingerprint of truth that is resonant to us. And we know we're there because we just say, I don't know, it feels right to me. It, if you take something very specific in your life, Josh, like you know for sure is the right thing for you. It's very hard to put language to why, right? Why do I love authenticity? Why do I love philosophy? I don't know. It speaks to me. I could give you some exhausted. Well, I think it's important because it talks about these topics and da, 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 da. And I think the values are important for these reasons, but like, why, why is it like really a joy for me? I don't know. It just is. I, when I was 16, I read Plato, I got full body goosebumps. And ever since then, I'm just like, I want more of that. Right. Don't know why. 
I also don't know why going to a conference at a, by an airport with the 5,000 people in the room is miserable to me. I hate it. Why, why do I hate that? I don't know. It's just true for me, right? It's not wrong. It's not right. It's just, this is the individualism of, of who we are. And I feel the Akashic records speak directly to that level within us. So if I studied authenticity before, I think of it as the tip of the iceberg. And I feel like this field has given me access to get under and see the entire iceberg, right? Of, of people's soul's truth. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small, doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodick.com slash donate. I'm curious about a lot of things. And I alluded to the community. Is there a large community of this? Are you, do you work with a lot of people or is it a solo thing? And I'm also curious, I chuckled when you said, after my dad had 20 arguments, I'm, I'm curious how your interaction with your family is. Yeah. I'm curious more about the community. Is it, I mean, you learned about it somehow. Do you interact with a lot of people when you do this? Is there some equivalent of going to some body of, you know, a church or a temple or something like that? Yeah. Well, so, I mean, real fast on the, on the family unit, like they're, they're a rough group, but I tell them the stories, right? The Tibetan bowl stories and, and they're daily. So whenever I see them, I'm like, all right, you want to hear a good one? And they're like, all right, go ahead. And I'm like, so this woman called me for, I don't even know who she is. And, and I go through it and they're like, that's hard to explain. I can't, I can't lie. Right. So they've definitely eased into it and they're, you know, starting to, I mean, they've asked me for readings, they're trying it, they've gotten more open because the facts are undeniable, right? I mean, you can't argue with how would I possibly know some of the detail that I do and how do I have these experiences? I mean, and how am I teaching so many people? I mean, I've taught a couple hundred people and they've all done it. I taught you, Josh, like Mm -hmm. you did it. So how, right? And what, and so they've, they've opened themselves up the community, I think there there is a big community. They're not organized around the Akashic Realm. It, the Akashic Realm, it's really sad to me. It's not that great. If you Google search it, it's, it's rough. You know, it's like uh, that kind of very stereotypical, like purple website that's unappealing and unrelatable. And the people speak in ways that you're like, oh, I just, I don't connect. The history of it, the story of it isn't that well placed on the internet. So one of my goals is to kind of be the person who brings this ancient system into a space. I mean, there's some, there are some great websites, but I want to sort of create a space where people can come who can get a better understanding it, get a history of it, learn about it in a, in a relatable, modern way. But the, the community of people interested are, you know, people like you, me, they do a little yoga. They're willing to try a modality. They're healthy skeptics. They don't know. They're not shut down and totally science-based or nothing. They're not like really deeply into their religion. They're like, I think a lot of people right now who are relatively open, but aren't finding something that is truly speaking to them. And then they do this and they're like, wow, that really, really resonated for me. 
you know, but they, they, I don't know, they're willing to do acupuncture. They're, they've gone on a, a meditation retreat, right? Like there are people who are, are open to what we call alternative uh, systems, which again, I find is such an American centric view. Why is that alternative, right? I mean, they're not alternative. They've been around for thousands of years. Yoga has been around forever. It's an incredible system, meditation. I mean, these aren't alternative. They're, they're beautiful. And the Akashic realm, I mean, it's been around for thousands of years. And um, the people who are excited to participate are seekers, right? They've tried things there. They've gone to coaches and therapists and they're doing meditation practices and journaling. They, they would like to, what's the way to say it? They would like to get a deeper awareness into themselves so that they can bring themselves forward in a bigger way in their life because they have more clarity about who they are where they're stuck, what's uh, going on in their journey, and anything they can do to to move their life to a next level, let's just say, of contribution that feels soulful. It feels connected. It feels fulfilling to them, right? Or it's sort of the stereotypical person I'm finding. And I'm curious, I want to ask about what's in the books. 15 books is a lot, although right now Amazon doesn't even let me click to uh, you know that little preview, but it says that they're about 100 pages, 150 pages. So they're, they're sh- each book is sounds like they're short, but it sounds like there's one unit of the 15. What are the books about? Yeah, I was learning the Akashic Records. I was goofing around with it, you know, learning how to do readings. And so I started journaling every day. I'd open the records and I would ask questions to help my own life, you know, type with them open. And in just total honesty, I was arguing with my partner she wrote me some texts, no expectations. It was something, something. And I was like, oh, that's so annoying, whatever. What does expectations mean anyways? And I was all frustrated, right? And I was in the Akashic Records and I, I wrote down, what, what's with expectations? And I got this answer and it was like, what the hell just happened? I mean, I started, for anybody who's a writer out there, you know how serious this is for people who are not writers you know, you hope to get a page or two pages in a day. It's, it's tough, right? It's tough to get like liquid gold writing out of yourself to go into creative flow state. I disappeared. I started typing. I wrote half a dozen pages in 45 minutes. And I kind of was in that Akashic, you know, Josh, you did it where time stopped. You're kind of like in this deep, it, it's like, if you go into deep, 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 deep creative flow state, right? Anybody who's ever experienced that, it's like that where time sort of evaporates a bit. And I looked up and I was like, whoa, what the hell did I just write? <laughs> so I kept doing that. And over six months, I wrote 300 pages. I just kept asking the same question. What's the nature of love? And then I would get these beautiful answers through metaphor that would translate into then the philosophy. I was like, interesting. I asked one or two more questions. I felt like I got this great answer, 3,000, 4,000 words. Uh, poetic prose with metaphor. And I just kept repeating out of my own interest, right? So what's the nature of self-love? What's what's the nature of... And it was like so simple, so philosophical, so profound, so beautiful and simple. And I was learning from my own writing, right? Like I'd read it and I was like, I didn't really write that. What was that? Like, Like, I'm not even sure I understand what I just wrote. I did 15 topics and then the books themselves... Uh, so they're the nature of series because I asked the same question, what's the nature of? And I get these questions, these answers. I laid them out um, like poetry. They're like books of poetry because the sentences are beautiful the way they came through. So I decided to take the several thousand words and 
turn it into a bit of a, a poetic prose style book. And I put out the first three, the nature of love, the nature of self-love and the nature of boundaries, because what does it mean to have love flowing within us at all times, right? It's not unconditional, non-transactional love. What is self-love, which is different? And we can't have those things without boundaries. So I thought those three could go together really well. And then the little soul school, I just had a lot more questions. I was like, well, I'm so curious. That didn't even, it's like, it, for me as a philosophy nerd, it's like the holy grail out there of questions. So I just kept asking, well, you know, what, what is purpose according to the Akashic realm? So I'm creating this school where I'm going to do live events and you can, I'll open the records. I'll ask a question, get an answer. Those recordings will go into a library, which, you know, for some small amount per month, you can have access to hundreds of videos over time of, of Akashic record wisdom. And did you do any, what's the nature of the environment or sustainability or stewardship by any chance? I didn't, but you know what? I'm totally down for trying that. I definitely under, I mean, we've asked, I've asked about the, the planet, you know, where things are. It's not, it's not so great. I would be very interested in that one too. Yeah. But with three up, 12 to go, I mean, just putting books together is a lot. Oh, wait, I just remembered when you were talking about coming out, there are these videos. I don't know if you've ever seen this video. Maybe I haven't seen it. Maybe. Anyway, it's someone goes around, I think it was like uh, in Arizona, I forget. And they go up to people and say, do you think sexuality is a choice or is it something you're born with? And I don't know if they were just choosing the ones where they said it's a choice. And then they would say, okay, are you straight or gay or what? And they'd say straight. And they go, okay, when did you choose to be straight? Yeah. Suddenly they're stuck. Uh, uh, yeah. Really revealing. And maybe a couple were like, oh, I see. Oh, didn't think of it that way. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know for anybody who has kids out there. I mean, you know, I know I'm a 15 year old, but when you watch children come into sexuality, the ages vary. So gay or straight to say, when was the day that you knew you were gay or straight? Because the, the answer is the, the younger you knew it, the more true it was. <laughs> but a lot of kids are, are just absolutely not, you know, having attractions or crushes or anything for quite a long time, right? Some kids early. So yeah, I mean, the whole topic is ridiculous and nobody says I am straight. They just start, you know, having small crushes on various people. But I also say like, you know, it's, if you grew up in a world, Josh, where every kid was going, Hey, Josh, like all the boys were hanging out. Right. And, and they're like, dude, did you see David? He looks so cute today. Right. Cause when you're young, like there's all these little gossipy conversations about the other sex. Right. Oh my God. So cute. Dude, who do you like? Who do you like? Who do you like? So if you were in a world where everybody was pushing you to admit that you thought David was cute. And then the next week it's like, Oh, Peter's a really cute one. And you're looking over and you're like, well, Peter's a good looking dude, but I don't know why they're so excited about it. Right. So when you're gay and coming through grammar school and everybody's talking about the opposite sex, you know, I would, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So-and-so is cute. Right. Like, but that's just not, I'm not having the same experience. Right. And so it's a, it's a total mind fuck for you to, to grow up thinking about the world through the heteronormative views and and part of your whole social environment is to acknowledge these crushes and feelings and conversations that you're just not having. <laughs> right. So I think that's a big piece of it too. It reminds me of something that a girl said to me once, a woman said to me that was not like some great insight, except 
No one had ever said it so bluntly to me. What was I saying about, maybe it was about myself. And she just looks at me, she goes, Josh, nobody is normal. And at first I thought, well, of course there were normal people. That's who shops at Banana Republic. That's what the Upper West Side is. Those are like the normal people. <laughs> and then I realized, no, there's no one who's normal. Everyone's got their thing. Everyone listening to this, whatever they thought was weird, something that sounds totally normal to them, someone is like, that's weird. Yes. No one is right down the middle. Everyone's got their thing. And everyone's... Well, can I just pause for a second and say, Josh, like, listen to what you just said. Right down the middle. It's like, is that the goal? Like, Do we want everybody to be in some middle space? Like, then where would the arts be? Where would any... Like, there's no such... I mean, if everybody walked the same line, it's like, I'm going to go to the ice cream store and everything's vanilla. That is just the best flavor. We only want that. Well, that's just boring and uninteresting. And it's not right to be vanilla. It's just a flavor, right? So I, I don't know. I mean, the whole framing of the conversation is odd. And, and the world would just be so depressing if we had this um, standardized human out there. Yeah. And, and even if someone thinks, well, everyone could be like me, that would be fine. Then. <laughs> And themselves, maybe they'd like if everyone was just like Josh, but there's so many things that to me seem totally normal. And everyone's like, yeah, you're the only one like that. And everyone, no matter how normal people think they are, I always, whenever I ask, do you understand why your download history has a private browsing? Everyone's like, oh yeah. Like everyone knows something they browse that they don't want other people knowing that they browsed. And it could be different parts of their life, but no one's like, I have no idea why they would have private browser mode. Uh, oh, yes. And completely. even if you find something and you're like, whatever you're looking for, there's like 100 million other people who also do it. You're still like, uh, still, I don't want, I mean, I'm still anonymous. I still don't want yeah. to know that. And, you know, to go like a step further with it, Josh, like I really feel this stereotypical human that we all aspire to be. If you break down who this person is, right? who's got the, the check boxes, they, they work like Wall Street giant, right? They're, they've got the work ethic of 12 hours. Their home is dialed in like Martha Stewart. The kids are perfect, right? Like everything is perfectly in place. They hit the gym like an athlete, right? They're in perfect shape. Their friendship circles are robust, endless. They travel, they're having adventures. I mean, there's not enough hours in the day to be this person right? Like you can't wait. It, and it's offensive to people who, who take these things seriously. Like if in fact you're an athlete, that's a six hour a day, like at least three hour a day job, right? So when you're in insanely good shape to that level, um, it's a commitment. If you're a parent who's really working hard at being a parent and keeping a nice home, that's a full-time job. If you're somebody who's out there working really ambitiously to change the world and you're putting 12, 14 hour days in, that's a full-time thing. So like to say like, hey, this archetype of like the, the middle ground perfect person is some amalgamation of all of these things. I, I think that's also what's causing so much distress with people these days, like trying to, and, oh, and by the way, really well read, right? I mean, been to, been to enough of the latest shows, been to enough of the restaurants. I mean, there's some ridiculous list of things that makes you this middle ground person, I guess. And I coach people all the time who are really high success achievers and they don't feel good about themselves all the time. They're just, they're never enough because they're not doing, right? You're swimming across the, the ocean or whatever you're doing and doing burpees and somebody else is like doing, and they take 
the best qualities of each person, cherry pick them together and say, I should be doing all of it. And there just isn't enough time in a, in a day or a year to, to do all those things. And why would we want to? I mean, everybody, there's space for everybody to, to do their own unique thing and, and contribute that forward for the rest of us to share in. Before wrapping up, I want to ask a question of, now I should have listened to our last episodes because I'm sure I walked you through the, what's now called the Spodic method of walking people through to act on their value, to, to share an environment of value and to act on it. Do you remember doing that? And do you remember what you did? Have we, I've I forgotten. Did I did do I it. And I think I worked to, ooh, oh, uh, grocery shop more effectively so I don't have any waste. And now it's been a couple of years. Did that make an impression on you? Did that stick with you? Did that go away, increase, decrease? Yeah. No, it did. And I I really do still work at it very aggressively. I, I hate throwing away any food. I really try very hard to meal plan. You know, I went through a phase where my ex and I were together for 17 years. I have a son and he was gone a certain amount of time each, just meal planning and stuff got more complicated and getting the right amount of food with one kid. If you buy a loaf of bread, it's not going to all get eaten, right? There's all these things. So yeah, definitely took a lot of that into consideration, go to the grocery store more often. So it's not right. It's it's a little easier if you could just go once a week, uh, get a little extra, maybe not use it all, but uh, for sure, definitely. So those are the things you do. What are the emotions attached to these things? Well, I'm thinking about what I was reading off of you, but is it What's the emotional experience of of these things? In what way? I'm reading that it's the motivation is not like you're doing it for me, that it's coming from inside. And okay, my read is that I don't see you describing like a burden, uh, even though it takes planning. I'm seeing, I'm reading it as maybe a bit of fun, maybe a bit of um, compassion for others. Like when you say you you don't, you hate waste. I I forget the exact words you said. I think you're thinking there's something motivating you that's not just the appearance of waste in the trash can or there's something else driving it, a connection maybe. Yeah. It's a, it's a bunch of things. It's certainly not because of you. It's for myself. I don't think we do anything long-term unless we're intrinsically motivated. Let's see. If I go to the store more often, I will have fresher foods. So that's nice. Uh, Doing a little meal planning. It's like thoughtful for me and my son. And it's like, I I like to cook kind of motivates me to think about healthy foods and things we can eat and time we're going to spend together. And then, you know, not throwing away food. I mean, you know, it's a handful of things. I mean, I I really believe that we have a weird relationship to the idea of grocery stores and food and the abundance of it. You know, people will say, oh my God, can you believe that tomatoes were $4? And I'm like, somebody grew that, packaged it, brought it to the store, made it look pretty, that's the best deal ever. Like you're not mad about a Sprite, which is just water and sugar, right? Like that should be a penny, but you're going to pay so much more for it. And it's toxic, but you're going to be mad about tomatoes. Like I think it's one of the better deals on the planet. Like the, the way that we, I don't want to farm. I mean, my God, it's so hard to I've put my own little gardens together in my backyard. Like it's, it's not easy to keep that stuff going and, and certainly to get the variety. So I have an appreciation for the the foods available. And so, yeah, I think there's a a bunch of motivations throwing it away, particularly there's a feeling that, I don't know, right? Like, Like there's this perfectly good thing that you're just getting rid of, right? I would feel that way almost anywhere in my life. Why not with food as well, right? I wouldn't take 
brand new socks and just toss them, right? That would be ridiculous. So why not equally value the cilantro that I purchased? <laughs> yeah, you pick something that goes bad really fast. So that, well, I find <laughs> yeah. I have to put it in water and then I put a little bag around it and it keeps it for a longer time. Yeah. I'm going to highlight that a lot of people, before they act on food, they tend to say things like, but fresh is more expensive. Organic is more expensive. You know, I'm not, I don't have the resources that you do to do that. And you're describing it as not this is expensive because you don't need Sprite. Right. And so to buy any of it whatsoever is throwing money away. Well, I'm offended by the word organic. I mean, all like our mindset around this stuff makes me crazy. My mom will always say like, that's organic. What's the, the price difference? And I'm like, mom, I feel like there should be two new categories, Josh. It should be food, which is what we call organic because it's food. That's just food that's grown properly. The other stuff is basically chemistry. It's just, a, it's disgusting. It's like not food. It's, it's something else, but it should have the extra title. And I think it should be something disgusting, like chemical. <laughs> and I say to my friends, like, what if you came to my house and I had a vegetable garden and I was like, hey, come outside let's pick some things for a salad. And I brought with me pesticides and uh, food dye to insert and growth hormones. And I was like putting all that in my food and you're watching. And I was like, do you like this tomato? It's really, it's not really red enough. Hold on. Let me just put a little more red in there. Ah, let's go eat salad together. It's disgusting, right? So the American population over what, 50 years has been told there's, when I was growing up, everything was quote unquote organic. What that meant was it was food. It was food came out of the ground, you know, not overly messed with. We started adding all this stuff to food and we substituted that stuff for the label food. We call this other thing organic as if it's special. And, you know, and then of course we make the farmers go through all the certifications. The people should go through the certifications should be these other people like prove to me what you're putting in that is safe. You guys get all the, the, the right, you know, I mean, I, I worked in healthcare, like what are you putting in there? Is that safe? Where is the trials and the FDA's approvals? And, you know, that stuff should be really, really, really seriously looked at, but it's not, right? And, and I think these foods are killing us. It drives me absolutely crazy. So the extra hoops the organic community has to jump through and then the price goes up ever so slightly. I'm just grateful that somebody's willing to still create real food and serve it because it's what we should be eating. The regular <laughs> listeners know what I'm about to say. Tell I me. have the perfect word for you which I've created. Oh, So yeah, the usual way I talk about it is you, you've, you've come across the phrase, eat food, not too much, mostly plants from Michael Pollan. Uh-huh. Do you know that, that? I don't, but. So this big writer, Michael Pollan, and he's written food rules and in defense of food. And he said, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. And that's his, like, because there's so many different rules to live by. And now when he says eat food, what he means is not what you just said is like chemistry, but no one has a word for the other stuff. Right. And I read a lot of nutrition books and books on food and, and nature books that food is a big part of it. And they're constantly trying to call it something other than food, but they come up with like fast food, convenience food, junk food, ultra processed food, Franken food. There's always the word food in it. So that someone right. can say, you know, oh, the single mom in the food desert, she takes her kids to McDonald's. It's not the best food, but it's, it's still food. I mean, the kids are hungry. And because it's junk food, well, it's not the best food, but it's still food. And I contend with you that it's not food. I agree. That broccoli and Doritos are as different. At, yeah. Because we don't call 
we don't call it poppy seed extract or coca leaf extract. We call it cocaine and heroin. Yes. And if yes. mom wants her kid not to feel hungry, you can, she can also give the kid heroin. That would yes. also make the hunger go away. Yes. But we, I, that's not acceptable, even though poppy seeds are. Yes. Because it's something different. And so yes. my word is doof. Doof is food backward. <laughs> and never call food doof or doof food. When you go in the market and there's the produce aisle, and usually it's mostly food there, there's a bit of doof in there. Almost the entire rest of the supermarket, if it's a standard regular American supermarket, almost the whole rest of the place is doof. If it has a nutrition label, if it has packaged, if it's packaged, it's usually doof. If it was designed, if it was more engineered than grown, if it was designed to create craving, probably doof. And once you see the different, like people who are, people who are addicted to salt, sugar, fat, convenience, they look at people who are addicted to other things and say, you can at least not, if you're an alcoholic, you don't, you cannot go to the bar, but every meal we have to face our addiction. But that's only if you believe that food and do for this, if you confuse food and do. Right. You don't need to have Doritos in your house. You don't need Twinkies ever. That's right. So, and if you eat broccoli, you can't get addicted to it. You can't eat so much broccoli that you're like, oh, what did I do? Try, right? Try to eat spinach until you're sick. You can't. You can't. I mean, it's just, you can't. You can't eat those foods. You, you tire of them so fast and you're full and you're satiated and your blood sugars are not going up and down. And yeah, I, I, I'm a hundred percent with you. I don't buy any of that stuff. It's not in my home. My son is fast food like three times in his life. I convinced him it's like from the devil. This stuff is disgusting. It, you know, tobacco leaves are called cigarettes to your point, right? Like we don't, we know that that will kill you, even though it's a quote unquote leaf. It's, it's no longer a leaf when you're inhaling it in that way. It's a cigarette and cigarettes cause cancer. This stuff is absolutely toxic to us. I cleansed my diet 15 years ago for health reasons, completely changed my life. Don't go near any of that stuff, right? And it's, it's incredible. You feel a million times better. And I don't need to diet or anything because I just like... I eat and then I'm full and it's just not hard. Yeah. And yeah. so now I give you the word doof and I've, I've talked to different guests. So Eric Adams, who's likely to be the next New York mayor, Dr. Joel, Joel Furman, who wrote uh, Eat to Live, Mary Nessel, who's big on um, a professor at NYU on food and, and nutrition. And it's starting to get used more and more. And once you start using it, it's, I'm not saying never eat doof. I never consume doof. I don't like to use the word eat with doof because I eat food. Doof is, I put it in my mouth and I might chew it and swallow it, but it's not eating. No, it's like, I mean, you're smoking a cigarette. You could go do that, but you might get cancer. I mean, you smoke a few cigarettes, it's okay. But like, if you actually start picking it up, it, right. I mean, it's not like I don't have a potato chip here and there. Like I do, but be mindful, right? Like yeah. it's- Conscious yeah. choice. Yeah. And it's not healthy. It's just not. Yeah. And so separating doof from food, you've already done it. I mean, to, to attach a word to it, I think helps people yeah. not- confuse. Okay. If you're going to, if you're going to get a Twinkie, don't confuse yourself that you just ate food. You consume doof. And if you did it because you felt, well, I don't know, for whatever your reason, right. So be it. That's your business. That's right. But you may have displaced, you know, eating actual food and who knows what you, you know, what you're taking in there. So anyway, so you're saying, oh, don't call it food. Right. I agree. Yes. yes I love it. Now we have heirloom tomatoes. You, you were talking about uh, uh, organic and non-heirloom tomatoes are the ones that, you know, 12 months out of the year, shipped from California, bred to be bright red, 
probably turn red along, along the way with some nitrogen or whatever gas put in around it. All these processes to make it look great. It doesn't taste very good. And do you know what they, <laughs> you're going to know this. Do you know what they used to call heirloom tomatoes? Tomatoes. <laughs> right. And somehow the non-heirloom, the doof tomatoes <laughs> got the old name. Yeah. They displaced, they, they stole it. It should be yeah. the other way. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. I will steal it. Yeah. The new tomatoes should be called doof tomatoes or doof tomatoes. And the old ones should just do tomatoes. <laughs> I love it. Thank you. I will use that. I use it in good health. <laughs> Thank you. So the books come out, when did they come out officially? Because they're not out now. You can pre-order them on Amazon um, right now. Uh, they will be in our hands in mid-September. Amazon has this weird thing that they have to be in stock because I'm not doing print on demand. So they can't ship till uh, sometime in early October. But um, yeah, they're available. If you, I'm going to have a page on my website, lauraco.com for people to go and purchase through my site if you want them sooner because we can fulfill them uh, mid-September. And I'm going to add, because I mentioned Amazon because I do use Amazon to read the previews, but I don't buy from Amazon. I, can't, I don't yeah. like the company. I think of them as like a payday loan store in a neighborhood that like they extract value. So they can get them directly from you. Yeah, we're going to put a page on my website and the little soul school so you can get them right, right through there. And do you take on clients? Is that So there's a book that they can reach you, but if they want a more full experience, do they contact you? Yeah, lauraco.com. I have a coaching page. Um, I work with people all the time uh, in two capacities. Uh, People who are looking for a life that feels a little more authentic to them. I've been doing that for a decade. It doesn't mean you don't like your life. It doesn't mean you don't feel good about your life. It's just like something's missing is sort of the classic person. Like, I don't know what it is, or you're, you're ready for a change. You can't figure out how to make that choice decision. And then I've rolled in the Akashic realm for those who are open to it. Um, I do readings uh, throughout the week for strangers who, who are interested and want to give that a run. So you can check that out on my site. I don't know if I, if I missed it. You also teach others to, to mm. do what you do? Yeah. So I didn't mean to, but I started teaching friends how I learned how to get in the Akashic realm. I did learn through a different system, but I didn't like it. So being entrepreneurial, I came up with my own ways. And I started teaching friends who were just interested. And then all of a sudden I was asked to do this men's group of 40 guys. And I was like, wow, that's profound. Like all of them did it. I mean, all of them. And I mean, these were investment bankers and accountants and just like, they were like, this is never going to work. And every single one of them did it. And so I've been teaching people. I have a a free page on my website with a bunch of videos you can teach yourself. If you want one-on-one help, it's an hour I will guarantee that just like Josh, you'll be in, you will, it's like tennis. I mean, I, I can't guarantee the quality yet. You have to work at it, but you, everybody can pick up a ball and hit a tennis ball. Everybody can enter the Akashic realm without question, whether or not you want to work at it, spend time at it, perfect it is up to you, but I can, yeah. So I work with individuals and um, I'm going to start creating some group sessions for people who want to take it to the next level and kind of go from just learning to, to, to practicing it in their life. I think it's got a lot of benefits. So doing um, some group classes is coming as well. And then uh, anything I didn't think to ask that's worth bringing up or anything you want to say to the listeners to close with? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on. Um, this is just an incredibly interesting and diverse conversation. It's super fun. And just, you know, 
I know what I'm saying may strike a bunch of people as quote unquote out there, but um, try it. You know, if not with me, I don't have any skin in the game. I don't care if you do it with me. There's a bunch of Akashic Record readers out there. See for yourself. It's experiential. If you've never kicked a table, coffee table in the middle of the night uh, and felt the pain and misery of being half asleep and kicking, like you can't describe that. It's particular, right? It's like, oh my God, I was sleeping and I kicked this table. And I the Akashic realm, it's like, it's an experience. It's hard to explain it because it's outside language. It's not like proven by science. So I can't give you that. Try it, right? It's a cheap experiment. See what happens. Every person that I've worked with is like blown away. I'm blown away over and over by it. So, you know, if you have interest, that would be my, my suggestion to you. And I'm really not here to convince anybody, right? Like, I feel like I found this like pot of gold. <laughs> like, If you don't want it, that's fine. I think meditation's extraordinary. I think yoga is extraordinary. It's not for everybody, right? These things. So if it's not your time. It's not your time. I appreciate just the openness for anybody who's listening. But yeah, if you're, if you're curious, that would be my my suggestion, you know, not to ask too many questions, just give it a run. Um, it'll speak for itself. Well, Laura Co, thank you very much. Thank you. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.